Would you say that in the past 6,000 years, we've made social progress? It seems like a simple enough question to answer, doesn't it? But what would be your answer? Surely, we've progressed beyond those backward societies of the past, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 2, 3, 5,000 years ago. Surely, those were backward societies, and our society today is far beyond that, far more enlightened, right? So what would be your response? What, in fact, would be the overwhelming response by anyone that I asked? Well, yes, of course, the question's ridiculous. Go out and ask some people, your friends, your co-workers, your family, and see what they say. You will find that the vast majority, if not absolutely everyone, will agree that we live in, without a doubt, a more civilized, more enlightened society today than from those in the past. But let's check it out. What are a few of the problems we face today? Traffic-ridden highways, race riots, continually creeping taxation, inadequate transportation, overpopulation, skyrocketing inflation, never-ending wars, increasing crime, inadequate education, increasing unemployment, increasing pollution, cancer, AIDS, and other diseases. On the news, we see the corruption of the day, the political scandal of the day, a new war, an escalation of an old war, a new outrage, someone said something that hurts someone's feelings, the lie of the day, and the list goes on and on. But every day is the same. These are the problems, and they're exactly the same problems that have been plaguing society for thousands of years. The technology changes, but we have the same problems that we did two, four, six, thousand years ago. Is there any record that these principles, these most fundamental problems, have been solved at any time in our history? No. Not only are the problems not solved, but they grow worse and worse every year. So I ask you this. Is it possible that our method of solving societal problems could be, in some way, defective? Could it be that when it comes to solving man's disputes harmoniously, maybe, just maybe, we have no idea what we're doing. We've had thousands of years to figure out what we're doing wrong, and instead of solutions, the problems get larger and more dire each and every day. Can wars continue to increase in severity forever before we get to the point where we simply self-destruct and extinguish the species? Certainly not. So where and why have we failed? Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we innovate actual working solutions to humanity's problems through the application of the scientific method. We'll also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning, and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the Mind Over Murder Case of the Week. And I can't overemphasize the practice aspect when it comes to rational thought and argumentation. Scientific and logical reasoning is difficult for everyone, no matter how much you do it. You have to continually practice. Think of it like this. If you've never played poker before, sure, I could sit you down and explain all the rules. But even if you've memorized those rules and can recite each one of them immediately right off the top of your head, it wouldn't make you a good poker player. It takes continual practice and experience to be good. 
Okay? Now, this is not politics. It's the exact opposite of politics, as you will see. What we're doing at The Rational Apprentice is applying the scientific method, man's greatest innovation, to our social problems. This is not something that has been done before. We will explain exactly how the scientific method works, what the steps are, and why those steps have been so successful in our acquisition of knowledge in both the physical and the medical sciences. And then together, we will apply the scientific method to the so-called social sciences to successfully and with a high degree of precision finally be able to identify both the root causes and the solutions to our problems. Let's start out by first taking a look at the things for which humanity has been very successful at creating solutions. In fact, we can make a general comparison of the progress we've achieved by splitting all knowledge into three broad categories. First, we have the physical sciences, the study of inanimate matter, solids, liquids, gases, planetary motion, particles, waves, electricity. Then we have the biological sciences, the study of animate matter, the nature of living things, plants, animals, cells, viruses. And finally, we have the social sciences, man's choices, actions, and interactions with relation to his fellow man. And as we can see from the chart that was sent out in the newsletter this week, and as you can easily attest to simply by living your life, the vast majority of human successes and progress has been in the physical sciences. In the second category, biology, we've certainly made some progress, but our capabilities in this realm of science does not even begin to approach our progress in the physical sciences. We have a way to go. Cancer is a thing and has been a thing for a very long time. Diabetes, AIDS, heart disease, these are all things that we have literally thrown trillions of dollars worth of research money at and have made little to no progress whatsoever at tackling the root causes and innovating solutions. In most cases, when it comes to the biological sciences, we've discovered what not to do. But we're at a complete loss when it comes to proactive treatment. And much of our progress in the biological sciences stems directly from technological advances made in the physical sciences. Advances in both chemistry and mathematics, both offshoots of physics, have given us almost all of our advances in the medical sciences over the years. The invention of the electron microscope alone has pushed this advancement forward by unlocking our ability to understand DNA. Consider where the biological sciences were and had stayed for thousands of years prior to Isaac Newton's integration of the physical sciences in the mid-1600s. So again, and this is far from a hyperbolic statement, the biological, the medical sciences would still be lurking in the realm of leeches, potions, and biles were it not for our advancements in the physical sciences. Now that brings us to the final category of scientific study, the social sciences. Now what is the extent of the scientific progress in the social sciences? What solutions have we innovated in the past, what, 6,000 years that solve the problems of man's continual inhumanity to his fellow man? Well, I'll tell you, none whatsoever. We have a 6,000-year, unbroken, historical record of mass murder, 
torture of innocents, seizure and destruction of property, embezzlement, arson, vandalism, fraud, and the list goes on and on. Are you aware that over the past 3,500 years, exactly 286 of those years have been without war? That means that for 92% of our history, we've been at war. 92%. That's 22 out of every 24 hours each and every day. Something is clearly wrong. But the question is what? Our societal technology has utterly failed to solve our disputes peacefully. And as we have seen in our most recent history, the problem is escalating very rapidly. So the common belief that our society has progressed at all since the caveman is an absolute illusion. Scientifically, there is no observational data to support that myth. We have misconstrued physical technology, electricity, cars, mobile phones, internet, with social enlightenment, and hence the problems remain after all this time. So we come back to our friends and family survey. Where is the observational data to show that we have made progress, any progress at all, in our societal technology? Thousands of years ago, the most efficient way to solve disputes was with stones and spears. A thousand years ago, the most efficient way to solve disputes was with swords and bows and trebuchets and catapults. We've progressed through cannons and rifles, then tanks, jet fighters, strategic bombers, submarines, aircraft carriers, and atomic bombs. And today, we have biological warfare, hypersonic missiles, stealth fighters, submarines, machine guns, cruise missiles, MERS ballistic missiles, psychological and economic informational operations, and the list goes on and on. Now, no doubt that's a lot of progress in physics and mechanical technologies. But after thousands of years, we're still looking for the most efficient way to rid ourselves of our enemies. Is this social progress? Well, hardly. In fact, and I don't think anyone would or could even attempt to argue with me were I to point out that today we are far far closer to catastrophic war that is the elimination of the species Homo sapien than ever before in our history. Could you argue against that? Well, I think you know the answer. So all of this is a lot of doom and gloom, big time doom and gloom. But you'll be very happy to hear that the good news comes now. As we progress through the Rational Apprentice podcast, we will demonstrate that our inability to prevent war is part of a much larger problem that even our most trusted experts have ever considered. And that our inability to prevent war is directly connected to our failure to prevent race riots, skyrocketing taxation, inadequate transportation, overpopulation, increasing inflation, perpetual war, increasing crime, inadequate education, the entire list we will demonstrate that it is all connected. All of these failures have a common origin. And if we are ever to finally make any progress at all, we must first identify this common origin, the real source of the problem. And we must innovate a solution. And together, we're here to do just that. Okay, 
I think I've sufficiently made the point that continuing along the same path is not an option and that using a broken system to fix a broken system will land us in the same place that we have always landed, on the road to oblivion. The solution is attainable, but the root cause must be precisely identified, and that's where the scientific method comes in. So starting in the next episode, we're going to take a hard look at what is arguably the most important premise for any scientific endeavor. Without it, there is no reliability in observed data, and the scientific method simply cannot work. It's one of the things we've seen a lot of, especially in the past few years. That's 2019 through 2022, and I expect that you will recognize it as soon as we get into it. The subject I'm talking about is a little something we call semantic precision. And it's going to be the key that opens the door ahead so that we can leave the world of pseudoscience and enter the world of real science and our ability to actually solve some problems once and for all. All right, Mind Over Murder is next up. Okay, just to get us started here, let me tell you quickly how this works. Each Monday, we release the Rational Apprentice newsletter. The newsletter contains the Mind Over Murder case notes for the week and outlines what we will be discussing in that week's podcast. That gives you four days to read over the case notes and begin to work it through in your head. What are your impressions, your gut instincts? What conclusions have been made and on what evidence are they based? That's the important part, right? Is the evidence strong enough? If so, why? And if not, what's needed to make it work? And do you see things that are missing? Okay, then on Fridays, the podcast is released where, as I said before, we talk about the topic of the week and then we go through the Mind Over Murder case notes, breaking the arguments down and discussing them in detail. All right? The newsletter and the podcast work hand in hand, so make sure that you're subscribed to both so you don't miss out. We're going to have a lot of fun while we learn and practice the skills of rational thought and the scientific method. Now, you can subscribe to the newsletter and the podcast over at our website by going to therationalapprentice.com, all one word, slash subscribe, or by clicking the links in the site footer. All right, we're starting a new Mind Over Murder case today, and we thought we'd hit the ground running with a real mystery of the ages. The case is the Tamam Should case, otherwise known as the Somerton Man or the Man on the Beach case. Now, this is hardly an unknown case by any means, and I'm sure that many of you have, at the very least, heard of it. So I'm going to make a request here, and this will go for any cases that we cover for Mind Over Murder in the future. When we use real cold case or even solved case files, we ask that you put your desire for answers aside, okay, and refrain from looking up the case and skipping through to the end. I know, I know, we all want to know what happens, and it's a bit of a big ask to tell you not to look it up and find out more. But see, that's not the point of Mind Over Murder. We're not trying to solve the cases per se. The goal here is the process, how we break down the information, how we draw conclusions, why some of those conclusions are valid and some are not, and the difference between what we know is true and what we can prove to be true. That's the whole idea here, practicing the tools of logical thinking, of evidence gathering, argument building, and of course, the scientific method. 
So if you want to get the most out of the podcast, and I know you do, follow along with us instead of jumping ahead. All right? Okay, so in today's episode, Reagan and I discuss the case overview, including the scene and the situation. This includes some primary witness observations and the earliest conclusions by the investigators. In the next episode, episode two, we'll continue the conversation by going over the very odd set of possessions found on the body. It's a strange case, so let's roll the tape. On the morning of December 1st, 1948, a body was found on the shore of Somerton Beach in South Australia. The man was resting against the seawall, slumped forward with a half-smoked cigarette lying on his lapel. He was well-dressed in a suit with shined and heeled shoes, and there was no sign of struggle or violence at all, and he carried no identification of any kind. When no missing persons report uh, matching up with the body was found, the police were forced to investigate the matter further. But each clue they found only led to more questions. In the 65 years since the mysterious body was found on the beach, no one has come any closer to discovering the identity of the man, what he was doing on the beach that day, or even how he died. Now, with so much evidence lost or destroyed over the decades, I mean, this case is 1948, so we're talking talking 70 years now, and everyone close to the case is now gone, deceased, it seems unlikely that uh, we will ever know the truth. However, we may, who knows, we may find something in here. So let's take a uh, look at the details of the case. Our discovery of the body. At 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. on November 30th, 1948, John Bain Leon and his wife were taking an evening stroll on Somerton Beach. Okay, this is a small seaside resort just outside of Adelaide, Australia. They noticed a man lying against a seawall about 60 feet away, and his legs were out in front of him crossed. They stated that he lifted his right arm weakly before dropping it back down to the ground. The couple assumed it was a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette and continued on their way. But right away, the couple assumed it was a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. I don't see anything about a cigarette. Can we assume from that that he had a cigarette in his hand, that they saw that? We can assume he may have lifted his hand and that's when the cigarette dropped on the lapel or the cigarette had already fallen on the lapel and he was raising his arm to get attention maybe from the leones yeah i just find he's 60 feet away are they going to be at 60 feet do you see a cigarette on his lapel and then immediately assume that he's trying that he's trying to smoke this cigarette? Uh, the cigarette confuses me. Is it confusing you because you're wondering how they could see it from so far away on a dark beach? I'm wondering, well, that that it bothers me that it's so far away. It's dark. He lifted his arm weakly. We don't okay. There are many ways of lifting your arm. What it, What is a weekly arm lift? Is that a bent wrist? Is that slowly um, dropping it back down to the ground? That I get. That's very visual. 
Okay. But the, I mean, they came to, they offered the information. They assumed it was a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. So are you questioning the lifting of the arm or the connection between that and a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what the purpose of raising his arm was. Was he trying to signal to them? Was he trying to smoke a cigarette? If he was trying to smoke a cigarette, did that hand have the cigarette in it? Or else how would they know that if for some reason they saw a cigarette on his lapel from 60 feet away? Mm. If the cigarette is lying there, they would not have come to the conclusion that he's trying to smoke it if it's not in his hand. Yeah. I mean, the chances of him of them seeing a cigarette on his lapel were probably small. And that's far. I'm not sure if that matters, but it's notable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's notable in s- enough where... They didn't find it to be, they continued on their way. They didn't find it enough to be alarming. Exactly. But, but, but notice the propensity for wanting to have closure. Oh, he's drunk. We can leave him there. He put himself in that <laughs> yeah, position. Um, he did. I don't want to get involved. Yeah. Let's go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything further on this one? Not, not yet. Okay. Uh, around 7.30 p.m., this is a half an hour later, another couple walking along the seawall saw a man in a similar position. They both noticed the man was not moving at all, despite the fact that he apparently had mosquitoes swarming his face. Now, mosquitoes are kind of small. Mm. These people must have been closer. Yeah. Um, they, they must have been closer and we don't really know where this other couple was in proximity to where he was. Right. Now, here's something that we skipped over. This is December 1st and November 30th in Australia, which means what? Summer. Summer. Yeah. And when it's summer here, the days are pretty long. I think that we're assuming that it's dark at 7.30 and mm, it's not. Good point. Because December would be analogous to June. Right. So 7.30, it might still be light enough. It could be that maybe they did see a cigarette. Either way, if they saw him with a cigarette on his lapel, that doesn't make sense that he was trying to smoke the thing. Um, he must have had the, cig- the cigarette must have been in his hand. And maybe it fell out of his hand when he dropped his arm. I don't know. It's hard to know. Okay. To the second couple. Um, He wasn't moving at all, despite the fact that he apparently had mosquitoes swarming his face. The couple joked that he must have been dead to the world to ignore the bugs, but the couple also assumed that he was simply in a drunken stupor and moved on. Interesting, because it if if he had moved his arm... At 7 o'clock, he was probably not dead. But then all of a sudden, at 7.30, he has mosquitoes. The, the whole thing is so different in a half hour. It is. I mean, we're talking mosquitoes, right? Not flies? Yes. It's not like he's been, he's he's sitting there, it's kind of morbid, but decaying, right? Mos- mosquitoes would be on anybody. But I think obviously the, 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 the fact that he's not swatting them away or, or yeah. uh, reacting to them in any way. Um. In 1959, 
Uh, wait a minute. How long? This is almost 10 years later. Yeah. Um, yeah this is 11, 11 years, years later. later. A third witness came forward to share something new. He had been on the beach in the wee hours of the morning and saw one man carrying another, seemingly unconscious man, over his shoulder, heading toward the spot where our subject, the Somerton man, was found. As it was dark, uh, the witness could not describe either of the men, and it is unknown whether this had anything to do with the case. Um, this is nine years later. Eleven years, yeah. Um, or Sorry, eleven years later. That... that uh, but if true, it helps us solve the case or make guesses as to what happened to him. Because now it looks like maybe murder or... Well, right. And it certainly places, if anything happened, it certainly places it at a different location than this. The witness could not describe either of the men. It's unknown. Well, I don't... It's unknown whether this had anything to do with the case. I, I, this is a very strange... That's a very strange thing to have happened. Yeah, we can't ignore it. Yes. I mean, a man carrying another man over his shoulder? That's not something that you normally see. So why did he wait so long? Very strange. We don't know. I'd like to ask whether or not it could be that the third witness didn't, uh, never heard about the case, right? Never put two and two together mm, and, yeah. and, and just assumed, you know, uh, this guy's, once again, drunk. And he's carrying him to his car, carrying him home or something. Um, we don't yet know, which we will know soon, uh, what he was wearing, what the, uh, the um, Somerton man was wearing. We do know that he was in a suit with shined and heeled shoes, well-dressed. This is not swimming attire. So again, you know, that's something I would have noted. But being so... Being that there is so much time between um, the uh, finding of the body and the third witness, that is something. There are a lot of details there that could have been lost. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, on, and unless he kept a diary, I mean, this would have to be the same exact day. And he doesn't say. He had been on the beach in the wee hours of the morning. We don't have any proof that he knew or remembered correctly what day that was. It, it, this is speculative at best. It is. But I think we need to keep it in back of our minds. We don't have the clues that are coming up. Um, I like this clue because it puts it in a different, maybe its own little genre of bad behavior, murder or something. <laughs> and so I don't want to leave it. Uh, all right. Okay. So uh, apparently in this next paragraph, we learn because none of the other witnesses saw the face of the man lying on the beach at night. It's possible that he was a different man, and the Somerton man's body was actually carried to the beach much later that night. It's a very busy beach, <laughs> if that's true. Yes. It's, um, I'm not buying this. For this to be true, you've got a guy at 7 o'clock who is very weak, in that position, in that in that specific position. Yep. Now, I've looked at the map of this area, and it's a very long beach. Mm. And unless there's a tiki bar right there. <laughs> so I'm not buying this at all. You're not buying it as relevant or... I'm, no, I'm not buying true. that it was a... That this was a completely different man. That, God, um, okay, now I understand just some, your point. Some guy carrying... A body, no, nothing to see there. And then suddenly we find a body on the beach. 
in the same location. Doesn't say exactly the same place. He says he's going to the, uh, what does it say? Toward the spot. Okay. Um, it could be that it was a different man, but I, I mean, what, sure. Could it be? Yes. I mean, how probable is that? There had been no signs of convulsions or vomiting at the scene. Common results of poisoning, right? So it seems plausible that the man had died elsewhere and been carried to the beach. Which adds credence to what our third witness said. Very much so. John Leon, the same man who had uh, uh, seen the body during the evening stroll with his wife the, the night prior, returned to the beach the next morning. Uh, for a swim, he met with a friend after his swim around 6.30 in the morning, and they noticed a cluster of people on horseback near the seawall where the body had been the night before. They investi- uh, they approached, and um, Leones realized that something was wrong when he saw a body in the same position as he saw uh, the person the night before, and he called the police. Okay, so he was there all night. Mm-hmm. Same position, same um, location. Okay, and we can assume at this point now he's dead. Yes. All right, so we've got some details about the body here. Um, he was five foot eleven. He had gray eyes. Now I've never seen anybody with gray eyes. I guess that would be kind of dull blue or dull green. Yeah. Um, his hair was a mousy ginger color graying around the sides and receding in the front. He was estimated to be between 40 and 50 years old. He was uncircumcised. He weighed between 165 and 175 pounds. I'm assuming that, I mean, you can always weigh a person, but um, I'm assuming that a dead body loses weight, right? So this is, this is an assumption based on what he would have weighed. Yeah. He was missing, now this is odd, he was missing 18 teeth, including his two lateral incisors. They never grew in due to a genetic defect. I'd like to know how they knew that. What, what, What else indicates that genetic defect in 1948? Well, there's something called anodontia, which is an absence of all the teeth. It's part of a syndrome. Um, there's other abnormalities um, involved with it, but interesting because maybe yeah, that wouldn't occur very often, I would think. And we could find his parents or dental records. I'm wondering if they went that route. I don't know. That That is interesting. I mean, that is definitely a very unique identifier. Especially so um, many teeth. 18 teeth. I mean... I didn't... And they don't say right. whether he had um, false teeth. No, they don't, do they? No, I mean... We'll have to see I mean, if there's maybe, I don't know, maybe it was on his body or something. Um, he had small scars on his left wrist, left forearm, and left elbow. Okay, all on the left arm. Uh, his hands and feet were clean and callous-free, indicating... Uh, that he didn't do manual labor. All right, so the initial investigation. The body was taken by ambulance to the Royal Adelaide, Adelaide Hospital. Dr. John Barkley, uh, Dr. John Barkley Bennett. This is not just your normal Dr. John Barkley. 
This is Dr. John Barclay Bennett examined the body. He proclaimed at the uh, he proclaimed the time of death to be no sooner than two o'clock in the morning, two a.m., based on the stage of rigor mortis. Uh, his report listed the cause of death as heart failure, um, which is kind of vague, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter what you died from, you died from heart failure. Yeah. All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly case notes four days prior to the release of the Rational Apprentice podcast, and you'll need those four days to read through and mull the facts over in your head, you need to go over to the website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on over here. We have a lot of courses and bonus materials coming in the near future, and I know you'll want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.com slash subscribe to sign up now. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.